Welcome to Blue Dot, a look at our place in space. I'm Dave Schloen. Recently, my daughter, a scientist who works for California Trout, told me about an amazing book covering one of the most fascinating natural regions of California and Oregon, the Klamath Mountains. She sent me the book and I was completely wowed by it. So we're going to embark on a special Blue Dot two-part exploration of the Klamaths with Mark Kaufman as our guide. Mark's the co-editor and publisher of the Klamath Mountains, A Natural History. The Klamath Mountains are one of the most diverse temperate mountain ranges on Earth, and our goal is to give you a glimpse into this spectacular natural region. In this first episode, Mark will join us to give us an overview of the Klamaths, and then we'll examine one of the reasons that this mountain range is so exceptional in creating biodiversity, their complex geology, with educator and Klamath geology expert Mark Bailey. Later on in the show, Tiana williams Clausen, the director of the Yurok Tribe Wildlife Department, will join us to talk about an amazing project reintroducing the California condor back into the Klamaths. To begin our journey, I'm joined by our guest and co-host, Michael Kaufman. Michael is the publisher of Backcountry Press based in Humboldt County, California, and a fantastic guide to the Klamath Mountain region, which covers much of northwestern California up into Oregon. Michael Kaufman, thanks for joining us for this project, and welcome to Blue Dot. Hey, it's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Let's start out with something very basic because I think there's, you know, there can be a lot of confusion and misunderstanding of what, what this region is. We're talking about the Klamath Mountain geomorphic province, if you will, as covered in this wonderful uh, natural history field guide. What are we talking about geographically? Let's, let's start with what's like the southernmost part of the, the border that you would consider the Klamath? Sure. So the, the Klamath Mountains extend south to meet the coast range, the north coast range, near uh, the Yolaboli Middle Eel Wilderness. And the southern tip of the Klamath Mountains is a place called North Yolaboli Peak. And they then extend um, north from there, kind of bordered by I-5 on the east. And then the South Fork Mountain, which is actually the longest contiguous ridgeline in North America, north along the west side, up through Humboldt County and Del Norte County to the Oregon border. And then they extend uh, into, into Oregon, kind of along, again, the I-5 corridor and north towards Grants Pass, Oregon. It's about the size of Vermont or New Hampshire. And uh, really, though, it's one of the least known mountain ranges in California, in my humble opinion. Yeah, and it has like several, you know, rivers in it. It's got the Rogue River, right, in southern Oregon. Yes. And of course, the Klamath yes. River. And a lot of people, when they hear Klamath, they just think the Klamath River, but we're talking about a much bigger area than just that. And there's the Salmon River and the Trinity River. So there's just, there's a lot to this area. And and then you have Castle Crag State Park. Would that be like on the eastern edge of this region? Yes, it is. And, and you know, the theory is that the Klamath Mountains would actually extend further east, except for they've been covered up by the eruptions of the Cascades. So Mount yeah. Shasta, Lassen, um, they've covered up parts of the eastern edge of the Klamath Mountains. Yeah. Okay, let's talk about this wonderful book you've, you've written uh, and will help to produce, uh, The Klamath Mountains, A Natural History with Justin Garwood. It covers so many interesting things, plants, animals, geology, fire, water, climate, cultural history. 
Um, tell us a bit about how you got so many contributors, expert contributors, to help you produce this book, because it's not just the work of you. It's a lot of people. It is. It's 34 people in total, including Justin Garwood and I, who were, really had our hands in every part of the book. We've been working on this book for about 10 years, and really it came to be because I've always been a big fan of natural histories, and natural histories are, are uh, stories that are told within definable landscapes. And when I first got to California, I bought the natural history of the Sierra Nevada. And I went Stephen on, Whitney. Yes, exactly. Yes, and I, I know that, but I love that book. <laughs> it's a great book. And I took it on many adventures in, in and across the Sierra. And then when I moved to Northern California in 2002, I started looking for something comparable because when I got out into the Klamath Mountains, I felt like there were a few similarities with the Sierra, which there are, but there weren't that many similarities. So I started to sort of dig in and, and deeper and deeper. And really, there's nothing out there comparable. There's never been a natural history written for the Klamath Mountains. So in my work, I have a lot of different um, capacities of, uh, of uh, people that I work with and um, I'm thankful to have integrated with many natural historians in Northwest California and Southwest Oregon. And really, it was just a, a passion project of mine where I started reaching out to people, sort of pitching an outline, pitching an idea, thinking about who might fit well within the different chapters. And I was able to track down regional experts in um, all of these chapters that you just mentioned. And uh, it took a while. This was about an eight-year project. I've been thinking about it for 10, like I said, but about eight years of working with um, authors and co-authors. And then really about the last two years, it was published in 2022, Justin and I dove in pretty deep and uh, spent a lot of time. Our families are thankful the book's done. Let's put it that way. We spent a lot of time on that book the last two years. Yeah, and I know the response has been, you know, good because uh, this book was gifted to me by my daughter. She was, you know, she brought it to my attention. She said, oh, you've got to read this book and, you know, send it to me as a gift. Uh, what kind of feedback have you been getting from fans of the Klamath Mountains? Oh, it's been, it's been really rewarding to hear from people, hear their interest in the region, hear people say, oh, I've always been looking for a book like this. And I think the sort of the um, the culminating uh, maybe realization within how good this book has been for everyone was winning the California Book Award for Contributions to Publishing in 2022, which were a gold medal there. We're very excited about that recognition as well. Yeah, well-deserved and congratulations. Thank you. And uh, in it, you, you begin with a chapter of by and about the first peoples. And I thought that was really wonderfully appropriate because uh, as we learn more and more about ecology and ecosystems and how they work, it seems to me that our lack of understanding of how the indigenous people shaped those ecosystems by living within them for millennia, um, that's finally starting to come around to where people are realizing it's like, these are not landscapes that were devoid of people. Oh, no. And it's present tense. They're still continuing to shape these landscapes. It's the, the First Peoples are an integral part of the ecosystems up here. They are still, you know, thriving in, in many ways, um, you know, touching the landscapes with fire every fall, uh, continuing to, you know, grow food sources and, and other resources that are important to their tribes. And that is one thing that's always been left out of natural history. So it was really important to us to bring that in. And thankfully, through my connections at Cal Poly Humboldt, we were able to get perspectives from 
um, I think it's six different either Yurok, Karuk, or Hoopa tribal members, and um, basically things along the lines of what it's like to live and grow up in the Klamath Mountains to the whole chapter by Frank Lake about the First Peoples and their influence on the landscape. Yeah, and if you look at the the biggest dam removal project basically in history uh, there on the Klamath River, that was principally driven by by tribal members. Exactly. Yep. Okay, well, when I think of the Klamath, um, a few a couple things really come to my mind, and that is geologic uh, complexity and biodiversity that's just off the charts. And we'll go get into more details on those things later, but could you just give us an overview um, with that kind of perspective of what makes the Klamath such a special region? Well, the first thing to consider is the rock itself. Like you mentioned, it's older than it's kind of like this stone in the middle of younger rock. So it's this older uh, collection of rocks and it's surrounded by newer rocks. Like I mentioned, the Cascades on the east, but also on the coast range to the west. These are new accretionary terrains that have been placed on to the continent and they surround the Klamath Mountains and the ancient rock. And one way to think about that is that there are actually three rivers that flow through the Klamath Mountains. And this is called a water gap. And this phenomenon is not seen very frequently at all. And then we have three examples of it. So the Rogue, the Klamath, and the Sacramento all cut a water gap through the mountains. And what that means is as those rivers have flowed over millions and millions of years, the Klamath have slowly risen. And um, uh, and it just attests or it's a, 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 you know, a testament to the age of this mountain range. So then you also have its proximity to the Pacific Ocean, which um, we're really here in the Klamath Mountains at the southern tip of the Pacific Northwest rainforest, but we're also at the northern extent of the California floristic province. So we've got this Mediterranean type climate driven by the California current in the summer that where we have dry summers, but then we also have really wet winters, particularly along the coast. And then that climatic gradient from west to east where things begin to dry out. And then the climatic gradient from low elevations to high elevations with the orographic effect, effect, the higher elevations are often much wetter than the lower elevations. And then, you know, like I mentioned, because we're at the southern tip of the Pacific Northwest, from south to north, there's an increase in precipitation as well across the range. So complex climate, complex geology drives this biodiversity. And the last, I'll just end with a last little summary here is that the Klamath Mountains are at this crossroads of a bunch of different ecosystems, the Sierra Nevada, the Great Central Valley, the Coast Range, the Cascades, and all of these um, you know, major biomes come together within the Klamath Mountains and they, all, uh, they influence the flora, the fauna across um, this uh, you know, very large landscape. Yeah, and another interesting thing is it's so much of this is, is wild wilderness country, uh, very rugged, uh, very difficult to access in places. There are people who live in the Klamath, and yet there aren't, you know, a bunch of big cities. So it's it's a relatively low population area, isn't it? Oh, you're exactly right. We're, we're, the Klamath is surrounded by big cities like Redding, the Rogue Valley with uh, Ashland and Medford. But n- there's not really that ability for it's The rivers are so long and the Mountains are so tall that it's really difficult to access um, the Klamath Mountains. 
Yeah. And uh, speaking of accessing the Klamath Mountains, some of my favorite places to explore, uh, especially when I was young, I went on a lot of backpacking trips into the Marble Mountains and the Trinity Alps. There are some just magnificent places to explore. There are. I've always said that the part of the Marble Mountains somewhere up Woolly Creek is the furthest you can get from a road in California. And I've never done an exercise in GIS, but just having hiked there, it's a real epic journey to arrive at that place. If you wanted to add one thing about why should somebody come visit the Klamath Mountains, give us your quick elevator speech and why you think this area is so cool. For me, it's the love of the conifer biogeography. This is the most diverse temperate coniferous forest on planet Earth. And there's one particular place in the Klamath Mountains called the Miracle Mile, where you can see 18 species of conifers in one square mile. And that's unparalleled outside of a subtropical island called New Caledonia in the Southern Hemisphere. So we are in a real hotspot here for biodiversity. And I think an easy way to understand it is through the eyes of these wonderful conifers, these ancient plants that have been on the planet for over 200 million years. Well, I'm sold. Let's explore the Klamath Mountains, Michael. I'm looking forward to it. Let's take a short break, but stay with us. When we come back, my co-host Michael Kaufman and I will learn a bit more about the complex geology that made the Klamath Mountains with educator and Klamath geology expert Mark Bailey. I'm Dave Schloem, and you are listening to Blue Dot. And we're back. If you're just joining us, welcome to a two-part exploration of the Klamath Mountains with my guest co-host, Michael Kaufman, co-editor and publisher of the Klamath Mountains, A Natural History. Now Michael and I turn our attention to one of the most fascinating parts of the Klamath Mountains, the complex geology that formed and shaped this incredibly biodiverse region. Our guest is Mark Bailey. Mark's an educator and expert on the Klamath's geology, and he wrote the geology section for the book. He joins us now. Mark Bailey, welcome to Blue Dot. Well, thank you, Dave. Good to be here. It's great to have you. And uh, let me just see if I can put the geology of the Klamath in a really fairly simple statement. It's very complex geology made up of lots of rocks from a long time ago and very far away. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty much it. Okay, is that the end of this? <laughs> yeah, we're done. But uh, well, I'd like, but it's true. Um, I'd like to get into some of the details of it. Uh, first of all, just kind of give us give us an idea of you know how complex the geology is of the Klamath region. Well, you know, it's it's incredibly complex, and it's taken a lot of people working um, together for a long, long time. It's it's not like the Grand Canyon, you know, where everything's laid out in nice layer cake fashion, where you can walk for miles and miles and follow the same geologic formation for miles. Um, everything is just twisted and tortured and clumped and broken and shattered. Um, it's amazing that people have been able to figure out a pretty good idea of what's going on to, to make the Klamath Mountains in, in the first place. And one of the most interesting concepts in modern plate tectonics geology is the, is how the West Coast of the United States in particular has been assembled, if you will, to, to use the words of John McPhee, um, of accreted terrains. So let's talk about those because they play a really important role in the story of the Klamath. So um, 
we have out in the in the Pacific Ocean, well, out in the ocean, these island arcs of volcanoes. Um, think of places like Japan, the Philippines, the Aleutian Islands, not Hawaii. That's a different thing. But those are the pieces. And and tell us, like, how did those chunks get here? Well, you know, it's a long story, and it goes back hundreds of millions, of billions of years, actually. All of these uh, island arcs, that are, which are just arcuate-shaped strings of volcanic islands. Um, those are all caused by the movement of these Earth's plates, the tectonic plates. And there's a lot of places where these plates interact together. And where they interact is where all the geologic action obviously will be. And usually that means volcanism. And so when you see these island arcs, what we're really seeing is a, is a above-the-ocean expression of the colliding of plates. And there's not just one of these boundaries. Um, there's dozens of them, and they're, they're stretching like you know, the classic example is like stitches in a baseball all the way around the, the globe. And in some of those places where the plates meet, uh, island arcs form. And the island arcs have been particularly important for the Klamath geology because much of the rocks in the Klamath Mountains are made from these island arc um, rocks. And they have a a characteristic signature to them. The the proportions of minerals in them are characteristic of what we can walk out onto a modern day island arc and, and see. So we know that there's a strong connection between the rocks that we find in the Klamath Mountains and the island arcs that we see today, and there's nothing else like it to represent it. So we know that they were island arcs. And so as these plates were shifting and moving, some of these island arcs in, in the case of the Klamath Mountains, and, and actually the whole west coast of North America, all the way up from Alaska to Mexico, um, has been a, a zone of accumulation of these island arcs. And the way it's set up is the, the Pacific plate, um, a large, thick, tens of miles of thick oceanic plate, has been diving underneath North America for millions of years. And as it dives underneath, it carries these island arcs towards North America. And much of the material is pulled down and destroyed during the process of subduction. And the subduction, as it happens, it's pulling these materials up and, and slamming them against North American continent. And so as one of them gets crunched and, and part of it consumed in subduction, there's, I, I say in the book, it's somewhat analogous to like scraping the mud off of your boots on a, on a mud scraper. A little bit of it stays behind, glommed onto the edge of the continent, and a lot of it disappears below the continent, which does interesting things in itself while it's underneath the ground, because it takes water with it, and the water from these oceanic environment rocks um, becomes very important when it gets at depth, um, interacting with the rocky material below. And it's largely what causes a lot of melting that produces magma that rises as volcanoes on land, um, or as if it doesn't rise all the way to the surface, it forms plutons, like the, the famous granite-type rocks that, that people are familiar with. And that, how many accreted terrains, these island arcs, these chunks of material, and I, I like your analogy of the boot scraping. I always think of it as like if you take an Oreo and just take the top part off so you've just got the white creamy part. Uh, yeah, that's a the bottom part of the Oreo is diving down into the Earth's mantle and we're scraping off the goo, the good stuff. Yeah. And that's, those, are the, those are the pieces that come in to make up 
the mountains of the Klamath. How many of those are there in total in the Klamath? Well, there's 10-ish or so, and they've been subdivided a lot. And there, there's some disagreement exactly about how, how to subdivide these things. Because if you look in a little more detail, there's a very widespread of ages for these terrains and of rock types as well. So how they normally separate them out is they'll, they'll look for commonalities such as um, common ages of a grouping of rocks. They'll look for um, common rock types, but they'll also look at how they're sandwiched in between the rocks that glommed on before and the glommed on rocks that came after. And so it can be a, a pretty chaotic jumble. And sometimes these, these terrains aren't quite as neat as you might expect if you're calling them, say, the East Hayfork terrain or something like that, or, or the, the Western Klamath terrain, as an example. It implies a uniformity, but they're not at all uniform. There's just a, a hodgepodge of jumbled, crumbled rocks. And you can imagine if they're, if they're colliding with a the continent, they're not going to be nice, even smooth assemblages. They, they are going to be fractured and twisted and gnarled and metamorphosed and, and just made into a confusing clump of stuff that, that geologists have been scratching their heads about for years. Yeah. So, Mark, I, you know, let's think about this as a transect. What if we were to drive from Reading to Arcade on 299? What, what's the synopsis of what we might see? Oh, and that's that's a nice uh, a nice drive too, because it it shows in the form of both road cuts that we've done purposefully, um, which are kind of like artificial erosion of of a sort. Um, it, it gives this cross sectional area as you drive from east to west of all these different terrains that that intersect that highway area. There's a, a few other terrains that are a little bit further north that don't intersect it, but the big ones, the the bulkiest ones are intersected by Highway 299. And it's a beautiful cross-section as you go from Redding to Eureka, um, driving along, you go from the oldest rocks in the east over near Redding to the younger rocks of the Klamath Mountains towards Eureka. So it's a it's a beautiful cross-section of, of all the rocks. I've stopped and chipped on a lot of them. But another thing to notice when you're doing this is... Um, they're they're a jumble and they're pretty difficult to identify in some cases because they've been metamorphosed, they've been twisted, they've been crunched. So a lot of them are just these crumbly piles of of um, difficult to interpret rocks. Yeah, those rocks are, are like you said, highly metamorphosed, and they've got a lot of slippery minerals in them. Yes, um, th things like graphite and you know there's serpentines, and that's why two ninety nine closes a lot, isn't it? It is. And there was a, a, a few years back, there was a, a major um, landslide at Big French Creek. And I put a picture of it in my chapter, but it closed the Highway 299 for a long time, for several months intermittently, closed it for days initially. And then they worked and worked and worked. And the more they cut away, the, the more it slid upstream. And so it's, it's like the biggest exposure of rock you see on that whole, whole cross-section as you're driving 299. <laughs> it really caused a lot of trouble. And, and it's because of the, the type of rock that it is. These are rock sediments that were um, deposited offshore and then were incorporated into offshore undersea landslides um, caused by earthquakes as the, the plates colliding and, uh, and just saturation from water. And um, so as these materials slid down the slope to deeper ocean, um, they just formed this, 
what we call a melange, a disorganized, huge, just pile of sedimentary rock pieces. And oddly yeah. enough, here they are at the surface millions of years later. And lots and lots of slippery rock. And yeah. that's, uh, that's a problem for Caltrans and, and travelers. Yeah. Okay, what you mentioned that the oldest part is to the east. What, what are the oldest rocks in the Klamath? Well, it depends on, on how you define it. The oldest actual rock that they've found in the Klamath is about a billion years. And in Northern California, we don't often think of rocks in the billions of years because um, there's, they're largely Jurassic age or even younger over, over in your area, Dave, where the, the Cascade volcanics are and the, and the Great Valley sediments. But there are pieces of rocks within Klamath Mountain rocks that are not a formation in themselves, but chunks of rock that have been dated at a billion years. That's equivalent to like 40 million human generations. Wow. It's hard to get a, a grasp on these kinds of numbers. You know, if we, we toss about a million as kind of an understandable number, but if you could count to a million saying uh, one number a second, it would take you almost 12 days to count to a million. And that would be with no rest. Um, and once you got up to the big numbers, you couldn't say it in a second, you know. So if we're talking hundreds of millions of years, we're talking, you know, half a year that it would take just to count that number. So these are actually very huge numbers. And when we get to a billion years, these are almost incomprehensible um, spans of time. But the, the oldest material that has been found, that was the oldest rock. It was, a, it was included in a, a section of the Eastern Klamath terrain, but they found mineral grains within some rocks that are 3.2 billion years old. So these mineral grains were themselves part of previously existing rocks that eroded and were incorporated into newer rocks that are now part of the Klamath Mountains. But if you're digging around for zircon crystals, which geologists love because they, they're real durable and they last a long time and they can be eroded and deposited and re-eroded and deposited several cycles and still be um, visible, still be extractable and measurable. There's some pretty old stuff in the Klamath, but that's really old. And as we get to the West, it's, it's a lot younger. Yeah. And yet the Klamath themselves, the uplift that kind of created the mountain part, that's, that's relatively recently geologically, isn't it? Yes. And interestingly, um, th that's a really tough thing to figure because these rocks themselves are hundreds of millions of year, years old. Some of the terrains are into the five, 600 million years old, but many of them are in the 150 to 200 million year old range, which doesn't, <laughs> doesn't sound like a lot. But like I mentioned earlier, if you're actually counting these numbers and trying to conceptualize them, those are really, really old, um, really old rocks. And um, a really interesting thing about the these rocks, especially the um, the assembled terrains, the accreted terrains, is uh, there are these things called ophiolite complexes. And I don't want to get into the weeds too much here, but they're really <laughs> fascinating because they're a record of what happened at the at the bottom of the ocean, at the mid-ocean ridges, where new crust was being formed in the process of what we call seafloor spreading that actually is one of the mechanisms that moves the crust around. But there are many of these ophiolite sequences where you can find a record of this this ancient process in the ocean floor in the Klamath. And I think that's really cool. Yes, and, and the exposures of these things vary quite a bit in age. As we get over um, into the eastern Klamath area, 
um, particularly the, the Trinity subterrain, that's largely ophiolite complex, as they call it. And it is a, a cross-section. If you could slice down all the way through the ocean in a nice, easy place, like you know, under the ocean, where nothing has been distorted yet, you see this typical sequence of rocks that are very, very dark, iron, magnesium-rich rocks down towards the bottom, real heavy, with lavas coming towards the top and then marine sediments on top of that. And it's a very characteristic sequence. And they can be age-dated using radiometric techniques. And they find that the that the Trinity Ophiolite sequence is on the neighborhood of 500 million years old. But then you get all the way over to the west side where there's even a better exposed sequence, very, very broadly exposed, and it's called the Josephine Ophiolite. And if you go drive north of Eureka and, and head up towards Crescent City and then go inland, all the rocks there are, are the characteristic orange of these weathered Ophiolites. But the Josephine is probably the most the, the best preserved Ophiolite sequence on Earth. So it's um, there's a lot of really cool things about the climate that are, that are unique. That's fascinating stuff. I mean, so Mark, the, the the main theme of our book is how these abiotic factors like geology and climate drive the biodiversity of the region. And clearly, there's lots of unique geological features across the range, from granites to metamorphics to the Ophiolites and the serpentines, as we kind of generically call them. But maybe you could touch a little bit on the marbles and some of the caverns in the mountains and, um, you know, some of the things that have been found in those caverns, if you uh, so. Yeah, that, that's so fascinating. And and just just the idea, first of all, if you have marble that tells you right off the bat that it was once limestone on a tropical ocean floor, because limestones in general form in tropical oceans. So as we're sitting out there watching the snowfall in the, on the, in the Trinity Alps, there are places in there that were limestone reefs um, in tropical seas. So that's another hint that the, the entirety of, for instance, the North American plate with the climates attached, and before even parts of it were attached, have been moving through latitudes across the Earth's surface. So at any rate, um, once these limestones start interacting with with their surrounding terrains and pressurizing and, and increasing their temperatures, they metamorphose into marble. And marble is really cool because um, it dissolves very easily um, with water. So it forms really cool caverns that I'm sure many of your listeners have been to. And if you haven't, <laughs> why not? <laughs> and, uh, there's several, quite a few nice caverns, um, for instance, in the Marble Mountains. There's a sequence of, of caverns in there that are in the characteristic rock of the area, the marble, and with in, interesting cave creatures living in there today. But if we go to other places, like, for instance, my favorite one is Samwell Cave. They call it Samwell Cave, but it's technically Samwell Cavern. Over on the McLeod arm of Shasta Lake, uh, there's a cave there that has tens of thousands of years of accumulation of fossil debris. Uh, most interestingly, some mammals fossils. And in that cave, um, it was excavated, I think it was 1902 by UC Berkeley. They found two different species of giant ground sloth. One of them, interestingly, was named the Shasta giant ground sloth, because that's where it was found right there. And they found short-faced bear, um, brush ox, um, and elephants in the form of mastodons and woolly mammoths. It's just a, a fascinating cave. And it's been 
filled up with sediment over time. So you, you walk in there now and you have to kind of stoop down. It's hard to imagine a mammoth being in there, um, especially getting to it because you have to kind of scamper down around the edge of a rock to get to it. But back in, when the 20,000 years ago, 17,000 years ago, during the peak of the last ice age, things were quite a bit different. And there were a lot of these animals around at that point. And so all of these animals have been found there, all of which are extinct of the ones I've mentioned. Um, there are, however, tons and tons of very small mammals that they're still working on there excavating that are still present today. So, you know, a mouse isn't quite as dramatic as a mastodon, but, you know, it gives very useful ecological information. And do you have a, like a personal favorite geologic story of the Klamath, some, something that's like really your favorite place or type of mineral or rock? Because there's some really unique, uh, rare minerals there in the, in the, in the Klamath. Oh, there are. Um, I'm a, a fan of the Pleistocene, you know, bring back the Pleistocene. That's, <laughs> I love the Pleistocene because there was, there was lots of, lots of big, big mammals and interesting, terrifying ones, you know, and not to mention the glaciers. So when you go into the Klamath Mountains, there's, there's some really beautiful spots, but the Trinity Alps in particular just have the, the fingerprint of, of glacial action on them. And I, I kind of liken it to the fact that um, when it comes to the glaciers, it's like walking into a movie theater and they're rolling the credits and you just missed the movie, but you just get the last end of it. And the credits being like the traces of, of ancient glaciation that were just almost, we almost made it to see them. Yeah. There's what, one, one glacier left in the, in the Trinity Alps? It's gone. Yeah, it's, it's gone. gone. Yeah. Darn. Darn it. That's sad. I'm glad I just Justin has a piece in his freezer, but other than that, it is uh, it's disappeared. <laughs> that was the, last, the last piece, huh? <laughs> yeah. I'm glad I got to hike up and go see it back in the 1970s. Oh yeah. Lucky that, you. Yeah. <laughs> Mark, thanks for joining us and sharing your love of the geology of the Klamath. It's uh it's something you could study your whole life long and still just really be scratching the surface. It's such a fascinating place. Yes, it really is. And and thank you, Dave, for, for all your good work. You, you, you put on some really nice programs, and, and I'll be listening in the future. Thanks to Mark Bailey, educator and expert on the geology of the Klamath Mountains. We're going to take a short break, but stay with us. When we come back, we'll find out about efforts to reintroduce the California condor into the wilds of the Klamath Mountains. I'm Dave Schloem, and you are listening to Blue Dot. Welcome back to this special edition of Blue Dot as we begin a two-part exploration of the Klamath Mountains with our co-host, Michael Kaufman. Michael is the co-editor and publisher of the fantastic resource, The Klamath Mountains, A Natural History. Now Michael and I are joined by Tiana williams Clausen, the director of the Yurok Tribe Wildlife Department, and she's going to share with us the amazing program underway to reintroduce the California condor, back into the Klamaths. Tiana williams Clausen, welcome to Blue Dot. Thank you very much. I really appreciate being here. 
Um, I'd like to find out a little bit about, you know, you growing up in that region and, and how you decided to pursue your education to get to where you're at now, because I saw you went to a pretty prestigious university. So I was born and raised in the Klamath Mountains region. I was born in Klamath, California. And my family actually, being Yurok, comes from the traditional village of Well, which is right at the mouth of the Klamath River on the south side. And so I spent most of my summers running up and down the beaches and in the hillsides, hunting and fishing and, and camping and doing all these things that just really made you appreciate the outdoors. Uh, my mother was a scientist. She was actually the... Um, senior fisheries biologist for harvest management for the Yurok tribe. And I actually swore that I would never be a biologist because I wanted to do my own thing. But I love science from day one. And so I actually had not planned to go into wildlife biology. I had dreams of being a doctor because while I wasn't entirely certain how my path was going to go, I knew I wanted to come back to the Yurok homeland and serve my community. And doctors are hard to keep in the rural area. So I applied for and got into Harvard University, where I pursued a degree in biochemistry as kind of a pre-med sort of major concentration. But when I got to be a senior, I realized I did not want to be a doctor. And so I was lucky enough to be offered an internship with the Iraq tribe. We really like to invest in our youth in that way through our self-governance department, which is kind of the state department for tribes. And it was at that point that I was introduced to the Tribal Park Task Force, which was a panel of our elders who were specifically chosen to prioritize natural and cultural resource restoration needs. And they chose California condor, Preganish, as the single most important land-based species for the Yurok people to bring back to our homeland. And so I had not expected that. I had not planned on that, but I ended up being the very first employee of what has now been established as the Wildlife Department. Um, and there you have it. Here I am. Cool. And you you said the name of the condor in, in your tribal language. Could you tell us that again? Because it's really cool. Yeah, it's Preganish. And I unfortunately, I wish I knew kind of the meaning behind that, but it's kind of a linguistical mystery. We've been thinking about it quite a bit, but unfortunately, with all the difficulties and hardships that tribal people went to, especially the boarding schools, which literally tried to beat the language out of our children, uh, some of these uh, nuances have been lost. But we continue to look for the meaning of that word. But um, he is a very important, cultural, culturally important species. And uh, we have a lot of knowledge about that, at least. So so uh, I am assuming, but I, I don't really know, condors were originally part of the Klamath Mountain region, right? Absolutely. They have been here since, as we say, since time immemorial. Um, our stories about condor go back to the beginning of time and before even really we consider people to have been the people of the world. And so our connection with them is very spiritual. We believe him to have been kind of a an elder spirit here to teach us how to be good people, at least in part. But from an ecological perspective, for sure, they've been here for tens of thousands of years, long before humans have, very much a, a embedded into this system. And what happened to them? Unfortunately, in relatively recent history, uh, this system went through a lot of change that was pretty destructive in a very short time frame, largely associated with uh, just the huge influx of, of people coming in with the California Gold Rush. And unfortunately, the people who really rushed in for the California Gold Rush uh, tended to be the people who favored extractive industry. And so 
ecologically, our system was just hugely impacted, not only through like the poisonings of our waters with, with mining operations, but with the raising of our old growth forests, uh, through the loss of our traditional prairies, because we as tribal people were pushed off the lands, we used to maintain them in quite a large expanse. Both of these things are vegetative features that condors really like for nesting, for roosting, uh, for foraging. They like to have those big open spaces. But there's a lot more direct impacts too. Different tribes, different families feel different ways, but I know I personally was taught that you're never to harm a condor, uh, but unfortunately people would shoot condors here and they would take their eggs. There was introduction of new toxins, um, a whole bunch of them. Some of them were deliberately placed out there, say strychnine and poison carcasses for carnivores that people didn't wanna see and condors would incidentally eat them. But there's actually two issues that remain an issue for condor uh, kind of in more modern times, which are DDT, which surprises some people. It's still causing eggshell thinning for condors and slowing their reproduction. And there's actually use of lead ammunition, which is something that we really only realized was a problem in the last few decades. But uh, the lead is highly toxic to scavenging birds like condors and golden eagles and bald eagles, black vultures and is getting into the system when a hunter unknowingly uh, contaminates a gut pile they leave behind by using lead ammunition. It's very fragmentable and gets into that gut pile and then gets bioavailable. Currently, that is the number one cause of mortality for condors in the wild. And while we certainly weren't keeping track of it as they disappeared from our landscape back around uh, 1892 was the last time a bird was seen, it's very likely that that contributed heavily to their extinction in this region. Well, Tiana, you know, thankfully, there's some enlightened people that are working to restore many aspects of the Klamath Mountains. And you are the one who has developed or at least helped develop the initiative to reintroduce condors into the Yurok Ancestral Territory. Can you tell us a little bit about how that reintroduction came to be? That decision by the Tribal Park Task Force was actually initially made in 2003. And the director of the Office of Self-Governance, Tom Gates, Dr. Thomas Gates, had been working for several years with U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service to try and get something rolling to get them interested in, in bringing condors back up here, because you can't just ask for condors and get them. So I joined his team in 2007, and by 2008, he had managed to negotiate in coordination with Chris West, who's actually our condor program manager now and has a lot of ties to the condor program. Um, to get a grant from the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service to do kind of a feasibility analysis, looking at those changes. Have they been resolved enough on the landscape to actually safely bring condors home? And so we did a lot of geospatial analyses of things like roosting and nesting and foraging and flight corridors, uh, which thankfully condors are actually very adaptable. So we found a lot of resources that they could use. Megafauna, which had been decimated, uh, had had repopulated based on conservation measures of the 20th century. We did an assessment for DDT, knowing that our next nearest condor neighbors down in the Ventana Wildlife Society flock in Central California were struggling with that. About 50% of their eggs are contaminated with DDT, but thankfully found that there was a very clear downward trend as you head from south to north. So our levels are four times lower than Central California's levels, looking at uh, marine food resources, that being where DDT is typically coming from. And then finally, actually looking at the lead issue directly, we could not study condors, not having condors, but we were able to study our local avian scavengers who are still here, uh, including the turkey vultures and common ravens. 
and look to see if they were being contaminated with lead. And they're actually indicator species throughout condor range, as well as the country, actually, uh, when, we're, when people are doing lead studies. And I mean, the good news there was that of any place else studied in California, we had lower levels, lower, lower levels of incidence of lead in our turkey vultures. So nowhere else. So basically we had less, less opportunities for lead to be ingested by them. At the same time, we still had about one in four of our turkey vultures coming back with elevated lead, which was way too high. And so that kind of started the next part of our journey, which was establishment of our hunters as stewards program. And so that was originally directed towards kind of the tribal membership, but soon expanded outwards. And the goal of the hunters as stewards, stewards program was to basically reach out to our local hunting community and let them know what was going on with the use of lead ammunition. Offer them the opportunity to ask any questions, offer them information about switching to copper ammunition, non-lead ammunition, which is which is uh, just as viable and actually a great, um, a great tool if you're a hunter. Um, and then just kind of invite them to join us in conservation. And so that made a lot of sense to us as tribal members, as leaders of this group, because we understand that hunters are integral to conservation and that they're really the people who love to be out there in the wild, really enjoying a full and, and beautiful and diverse system. And so anywhere, depending on the event that we held, anywhere from 85 to 95% of the hunters we talked to said first, they had no idea about the problem with lead, that this much lead was getting into the system and into the meat that they were eating. And second, of course, they would voluntarily make the switch to non-lead ammunition. Again, not surprising to us as uh, hunters within our program and as tribal members. Since then, California has actually banned the use of lead ammunition in hunting. And we have not seen the positive effects of that yet. I think there's a lot more education that needs to happen out there just to get people that information and then outreach again to say, hey, you can be a part of the solution. You are the solution. And I think that's really what's going to be the turnaround for that. But we kind of took this partnership-based approach, and ultimately that resulted in a memorandum of understanding across 16 parties, including the Yurok tribe, that not only said that condors would benefit from returning to our region, but that our region itself would benefit from their return. And that was the foundation, I think, of our success. So how many, how many condors do you have and how many have been released into the wild? Well, we received our first cohort. Um, I always say we were putting in the last bolts um, the day before they arrived uh, in March of 2022. And so that included one mentor bird, Pytokwin, who came from the Boise World Center of Birds of Prey, uh, unfortunately unreleasable, but still has a lot to teach our younglings about kind of what it is to be a condor. And just a couple days later, we received four new birds, um, juveniles. And so all birds that are coming from the rearing facilities, which is where we get our birds, are juvenile birds. That helps them kind of more imprint on the landscape that they're being introduced to. And those four birds were actually released in May of 2022, with the first two birds, Hoytwasan and Nesquichok, are names that we, we granted them, A3 and A2 on their wing tags, if you look at them, being released May 3rd. Shortly after, in August, we received a second cohort of four more birds, and they were fully released by November of 2022. 
And we were blessed to receive and release uh, another cohort this fall, um, also fully released by November of this year, bringing us to a total of 11 free-flying birds in your country now. Oh, it's amazing. Um, I've heard this story before, but it always chokes me up. It's great stuff you're doing, Tiana. So how are the birds doing and how are you monitoring them? The birds themselves are doing great. You can definitely see how far, especially that first cohort has come. They stuck around home quite a bit when they first started out. These birds have never been in the wild before, so they really do kind of have to get their wings under them, uh, learn how to fly in this in this landscape. But they've traveled as much as 52 miles away from our release area now. Uh, they've been up the Klamath River. They've been down to the lagoons along our coast. They've been up to uh, the mouth of the Klamath, very near to where my traditional village is. So that was very cool. They are learning to navigate. I remember the first time we had a bird watching the turkey vultures, basically, and learn to kettle upwards and get that height so he could travel around. That was really exciting. And they've actually had the opportunity to do some wild foraging that took them a while uh, while they're getting their wings under them. We provide them everything they need at our release and management facility. They really are just little guys, uh, nine and a half foot wingspan little guys, but young. And so we provide them food and water and uh, a predator exclusion fence. So they've got someplace safe to be. But a few months ago, they actually did their first foraging event. And it was super cool because it actually happened on tribal member land. And they fed on two animals, a deer and a bear, both of which had been harvested with non-lead, non-toxic ammunition. One, a box that we'd actually handed out to the tribal member and the other by a tribal member who just always uses non-lead now because of, of the information we'd got out there. So that was awesome. For you and and for the for the Yurok people, what does it what does it mean to have the condors back in the Klamath? It's one thing to hear the stories about a family member, you know, four generations back, and that's kind of how it was. Condors had not been alive with us for that many generations. It's another to to be able to see that that family member day in and day out, and so that was one of the primary things that was very important to me as a tribal member is bringing that condor, that Breganish back to our environment to be part of our community and actually to be reinvested in our traditions and culture again. Well, Tiana Williams-Clausen, director of the Yurok Tribe Wildlife Department and this amazing program to reintroduce condors into the Klamath Mountains. Thanks for joining us on Blue Dot. Absolutely, this was great, thank you so much. Thanks again to our guests, Klamath geology expert Mark Bailey and Yurok Tribe Wildlife Department Director Tiana Williams-Clausen. And very special thanks to our guide and co-host Michael Kaufman, publisher of Backcountry Press in Humboldt County, California, and the co-editor of the fantastic book, The Klamath Mountains, A Natural History. Be sure to join Michael and I next week as we continue our exploration of this incredibly biodiverse region as we go in depth to examine the forests and wildlife of the Klamath Mountains. Blue Dot is a production of North State Public Radio, a service of Cap Radio in beautiful and talented Northern California. We're distributed by PRX. If you want to revisit, share, or check out past episodes, you can do just that on our website, mynspr.org. And while you're at it, subscribe to our podcast so you never miss an episode on our website, the NPR One app, or wherever you get your podcast groove on. Our theme music, Big Wave Dave, is by Matt Schiltz. 
Blue Dot is engineered and produced by the maestro Matt Fiddler. And a very special hello to our new listeners on KHSU on California's North Coast. We hope you enjoy all of our programs now and into the future. I'm Dave Shlom, and for all of us here, I remind you there that from deep space, we all live on a pale blue dot. Thank you.